Again, let me say good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. I want to preach this morning on the topic of legalism. Ooh, <laughs> legalism. You know what I'm talking about? Legalism. Legalism is not a word that is found in the Bible, but rather it is an attitude of the heart. What is legalism? Legalism is demanding strict, excessive conformity to a set of rules you made up. (laughs) How's that? Strict, excessive, demanding strict and excessive conformity to a set of man-made rules. Now, immediately, when you hear that, you cringe, because when a person is legalistic, you can see how immediately they would become self-righteous, right? Judgmental, hypocritical, looking down on others. You might even say they have a pharisaical spirit. They were like the Pharisees. Well, that's actually how it comes up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be seeing how Jesus interacts with the legalism of the Pharisees. Now, now let me tell you, there's a little bit of legalism. I know nobody wants to admit this, uh, but there's a little, little bit of legalism in all of us. There's a legalist in all of us. In fact, if you're sitting here and you hear me say, today the sermon is on legalism, if your first thought is, oh man, I can be judgmental of others, I can be hypercritical of others, I, I struggle with this, you're actually in a pretty good state. That means you have some self-awareness. If you're hearing this going, oh man, I know some people that need to hear this. I'm glad I don't struggle with this. Uh Uh-oh, right? It may be just for you. So a hypercritical spirit demanding that others follow that. I know we don't want to admit it. There's a little bit of legalism in all of us. There's a little legalist in all of us. How do I know? This is Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people are going to be traveling, driving on the highways this weekend. And when you're driving on the highway, here's what I learned. There's a little bit of legalism in all of us, just a little pharisaical spirit. How do I know? Because when you're in the South and you're driving, come with me to I-65 and we're traveling down and we get a notice on a big sign that there's a merge ahead. Two lanes are going to become, you already know where I'm going with this. There's a little legalist in all of us. Yeah. Two lanes are going to become one. Now it's three miles from now, just in case you're driving a 747. But just so you know, three miles from now, two lanes are going to become one. Anywhere else on the planet, you would go all the way to the end and you would zipper merge. But when you were in the south, what do you do? I mean, my, as soon as you find out that one, two lanes are going to become one, you put on your blinker. And as early as you can, you get into that lane so that you can wait your turn patiently like everyone else. And invariably, someone goes blowing past you who's obviously not from around here. Right? Because they go past you, and what are they going to do? They're going to do what you would do anywhere else in the planet, and they would go all the way. They're probably from New York with their sweet family, and no one's learned them yet that you, you don't do that, right? Now, it's not against any state law. It's against your law. It's against etiquette, but it's not against the law, right? They're going to go all the way down. I, I asked, I've asked officers of the law before this sermon illustration, is that against Alabama law that you can't just go all the way down and then zipper merge? There's an interview with a state trooper. It's very interesting. He says, actually, that would be better. For overall traffic flow, that would be better. I thought, good luck, state trooper, trying to explain that to folks. So here's what happens. He's gotten all the way down there, and no one has let him in. And your heart is thrilled. And you've counted 176 cars. And when you get there, do you let him in? There's a little bit of legalist inside all of us. Why? Because he broke the law? No, because he broke your law. 
and you demand following your law. Everybody see my point? There's a little bit, and you just go right past him and smile and think, you got what you deserved. (laughs) Pastor Tom, you got exactly what you deserve. Come on, there's a little bit of legalism in all of us. We're demanding a conformity to the laws we made up. No, I know that's not Alabama state law, but it should be, we think. And it's, it's common sense, we think. Of course it's common sense when you think it. It's your law and you demand it of others. We can laugh about it when it's driving, but legalism is toxic. How many families have been ripped apart by legalism? How many schools have been torn apart and workplaces have been torn apart and what happens when it comes in the church? There are people who have never darkened the doors again because legalism was poison and it broke relationships and it shattered some things. Legalism, toxic. They were told to get to God. Well, you, you got to do this, this, this. You got to follow these rules. And yeah, there's the Bible, but you got to understand we got some. We got some rules. We we put on top of that and an excessive conformity to rules, as if telling people it's like it breaks the heart of God. It's like well, you got to check all these boxes and then you can then maybe you can get to God. What? What's gone wrong? I read this quote that the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they knew, the, they knew the, the scriptures backwards and forwards. It says, but their heart was more set on good grades than a good God. They wanted to get an A on all the scripture tests, but they missed the very heartbeat of God, which was his love. He, in fact, you may be here today. You may, it may have been a long time since you've been in church because of legalism, for which the church must apologize in many cases. And I'm sorry, because that doesn't represent the heart of God. So what do you do? How do you find freedom from legalism? Well, there are some, right? I mean, even, you have to admit, you don't want to throw the law out altogether. Even small laws are built for human flourishing. This, this is not wrong. When I say legalism, I'm not talking certainly about the law of God, and I'm not even talking about small. Small man-made rules can be helpful. Take curfew, for example. When a teenager gets old enough that they can begin to drive, the parents suggest a curfew. Instead of fighting every night, let's just set a curfew. And the parents suggest 8 p.m. on school nights and 9 p.m. on weekends. The child counters. How about midnight on school nights and 2.30 a.m. on weekends? Some negotiation happens, and they meet in the middle, and everybody wins. The parent wins because they can sleep at night knowing that all their little uh, uh, kids are safe under the roof, and the kid wins because nothing good happens that late anyway, and because they know they don't have to. It's not going to be a fight every night. They know the standard, but when a man-made rule comes up against an absolute, what's an absolute? An absolute would be love your neighbor as yourself. An absolute would be uh, honor others above yourselves. These scriptural absolutes, everybody knows. Every parent in here would back me up on this. The, when the absolute smashes into the man-made rule, the man-made rule must yield. So, for example, when, when you're out and your buddy has a flat tire, you need to make sure they get safely home and not stranded late at night, even if it means you miss curfew. And every parent would understand that. Why? They would say, well, yeah, we gave you the man-made law of curfew, but when the man-made law of curfew comes up against God's law of absolute, the man-made law will yield to love. The law will yield to love. I I may may lose some of you by the time the end of the sermon is over. So if I lose anybody or if you're like, "Ah, I'm not really a notary, I can't follow you, just, just give it to me right now at the top. Here's what it is. The sermon is about the problem of legalism, how it's toxic, how an excessive conformity, a demanding an excessive conformity, how it's toxic. But that legalism, the solution is Jesus. It's the law of love. 
That's it. That's, that's what Jesus does in this. Because here's what happens. Here's what I want you to see. The solution to legalism, and this is where a lot of people get it wrong. The solution for some people, well, I don't want to be legalistic. I, I grew up in a, in a religion that was legalistic. Or I grew up in a home that was way legalistic. They were so focused on the rules, they didn't seem to care about the relationship. Here's a mistake they make. They do what's called overcorrecting. And the pendulum swings all the way over here to lawlessness. So the way you solve uh, the way you solve legalism, can you imagine a pendulum where on one side you got a big uh, you, you, you got legalism and that's poison and toxic, and you swing all the way over here? Well, the solution is not it's not lawlessness. It's not to say, well, I'm just going to throw off the law altogether. No, no, no. And there are limitless examples of this. We may even have a, a picture up here. I don't know if you can show this. Uh, 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 it, here's a way to illustrate: both are toxic, both are poisons. Does that make sense? So the way you solve legalism is not by going in lawlessness. Examples of this are all over the map, right? We can all come up with examples of, of legalism. Oh, the, 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 you know, the older brother in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son, he might be compared to the Pharisee, the legalist, but the solution is not be the younger brother and go out and live in the pigsty. That's no solution. That's not going to help you anymore. Right? When Christian young people begin navigating uh, uh, dating, there, there's ways to be legalistic about it. There's also ways to be utter lawless. Lawless is not the solution to legalism, right? Materialism, the list goes on and on. Is anybody old enough to, I'm talking about a whole uh, category of uh, drinking, smoking, card playing, and dancing. Am I hitting anybody? Right? Now listen, we can laugh at that and we can say, well, I, I can see how people would get legalistic about those things. That's true. But if you're waking up hungover in Vegas, having gambled your life savings away, there's no freedom in that either, is there? Both are a heavy yoke of bondage. Both are a heavy yoke that it's possible to be enslaved on either end. And that's why, that's why we're in Matthew 12 today. That's why the verses right before this in Matthew 11, if you were here last week, that's why Jesus said, come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened. And for some, you're weary and heavy burdened because you've been under the guilt and the condemnation of legalistic religion. Rules and regulations that you never feel you can line up to. Or you're under the weight and heavy burden of a life that's out of control and utterly lawless. And Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm Jill and humble in heart. I don't have a yoke of legalism and I don't have a yoke of lawlessness. What does he say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. All he asks is that you be yoked to Jesus. You come in relationship with him. You abide in him. And so I give some practical uh, uh, illustrations of this. Watch, watch, watch what happened. Now, in Matthew 12, the issue that set off the whole legalism, lawlessness debate was not one that might have made much sense to us. To be fair, if I went back to the Pharisees and Sadducees in the first century and I gave them my illustration about driving on the interstate, it wouldn't make any sense to them. We get it. So culturally, this may not make sense to you, but their issue, their hot-button issue on legalism, lawlessness, was the issue of Sabbath observance. Again, may not make much sense in our cultural framework, but made absolute sense to them, and I think you'll be able to apply it uh, very easily. Look what happens. In Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1, watch what happens. Watch how this hot-button issue gets set off. At that time, verse 1 says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, 
Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I have so many questions about this, these two verses, but the most obvious to me is we know what Jesus and his disciples were doing. Matthew tells us as he goes along from there, so they're traveling through. My question is, what in the world are the Pharisees doing in a grain field on a Sabbath morning? Like, obviously, they were out to get Jesus. You know what I mean? They're like investigative journalists who are trying to trap him. And I just imagine they're going through plucking the grain, and suddenly Pharisees pop out of a cornfield like hee-haw. Like, what? Talk about children of the corn. They just... So, well, what are they so upset about? You might think, you might think they're going through, they're grabbing some random farmer's grain, and they're you know, rubbing it together to get the good stuff so that they can have breakfast of champion. <laughs> Wheaties. Wheaties is what they're doing. And they're cornflakes. And, and, and right, this, they're blowing, blowing off the chaff. They eat it. You might think that they're in trouble for stealing, right? Because it's not their grain. And, and the Pharisees are like, ah, you see that? They're stealing. If that's what you think. You'd be wrong. They're not stealing. In fact, it is encoded in God's law in the Torah that what they were doing was perfectly legal. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can find it in verses 24 and 25, this was actually how God instructed the farmers to care for the poor. The deal was you could harvest all your crops, but for the gleaners, you had to leave a little bit on the edges of all the fields. Why? So that somebody along the way, if they were hungry and they were willing to work a little bit, they could go out, they could take. Now, if they took a, a sieve and reaped in a big old bucket and reaped a bunch of crops, that would be stealing. But just taking enough for what you need because you're hungry, it's actually a pretty good welfare system. You got to work for it, but if you're willing to work, God will provide for you. That's pretty good, right? Seems pretty fair. So what they were doing, Pharisees had no problem with that at all. That was the problem. What was the problem? Sabbath. Sabbath. We've got to understand a little bit about what they were so upset about. Sabbath. Sabbath, as you know, is the command God gives. It's the fourth in the Ten Commandments, and the Sabbath commandment is simply a stop work day. Stop work day, that's what it is. It comes to us in the fourth commandment. If you want to read it in Exodus chapter 20, it's pretty simple. You don't actually, other than the commandment, you don't find a lot in the Old Testament about it. The commandment, let's just to refresh everybody, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So it's got to be different. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And that's it. You can find it a handful of places in the Old Testament. But they, they don't, they don't give, the Old Testament doesn't give you a lot to go on when it comes to Sabbath observance, right? So that, that, um, I think it's because God figures most people understand when it says six days you do all your work, you take a seventh that's a not work day. So whatever your normal work is, you take a day off, take a day of rest. Here, it's a freebie. It's a gift. I'll take care of you. It goes all the way back to creation, even when he provided for the Israelites in the wilderness with manna. You, don't go out and gather on the seventh day. I'll give you enough on day six you can store up, right? So that's all. Uh, there's, a, there's one uh, in the Old Testament about technically they were going out kindling a bunch of fires. And he said, all right, all right don't, don't be kindling fires as an illustration of work. In, um, oh, in Nehemiah, they got in trouble for they were doing their buying and selling just like it was any other day. But other than that, there's not a lot to go on on what not work means because I think God's like, isn't it obvious? Well, the Pharisees felt it was not obvious at all. And so over time, they said, well, what does not work mean? Well, how much can you work before it's work? Well, what if you do a hobby? But like, like for me, like for you, golf's a hobby. For me, that's work. Like it's, it's awful. I'm, I'm chasing everything. Okay, so when does golf become work? You get what I'm saying, right? And so, so what do they do? Well, they started putting oral law around God's law, the Torah. 
They called it the Mishnah. There's 39 categories of work, and work begins to be clearly defined. Things like no reaping, no plowing, no hunting or gathering. All that would be considered work. Some of it makes sense. How far can you walk before it's work? There's an answer for that. The answer? 1,100 paces. According to the oral tradition that the Pharisees would have followed, 1,100 paces. Not work, not work, not work. At 1,101 work, you've now broken the Sabbath. That's the point. You say, well, that's crazy. No, that's legalism. Laws generate more laws. It always does, right? Think of the U.S. tax code. It should be simple. Tax income Roughly at a percentage. People who make a lot of money, the percentage is going to be marginalized. It's going to graduate. Okay, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be a little more. People with less. Okay, go. Suddenly, what's income? What's considered income? What's a, what's a depreciation? What's a lot? You know, you got to, what are you doing? Well, laws generate more laws. So at some point, you got to decide how far is too far on the walking. And they decided, 1,100. Well, uh, you go back and read. Again, some stuff just starts to get, you're not allowed to spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Do you know why? Because spitting's disrespectful? No. Because if the spit dents the soil, that's technically plowing. Can't drag a chair on the Sabbath because if the chair leaves ruts in the dirt, that's plowing. Back to your spit. If there happened to be a seed germinating under your spit, now you've watered. Now you're full-blown farming. If a, I'm not making this up. If a deer walks into your home, you cannot shut the door. That's hunting. Trapping, technically. Some of these traditions, you know, are practiced today in New York where we lived. Certain buildings, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, uh, you'd get on certain elevators. You wouldn't have to push the button. It would just come. One elevator was designated, and it would open. The doors would open. You would get on. It would close, and every button was lit up. It would go to the first floor. It would open. Nobody pushes a button, and it shuts. It goes to the next one, opens, shuts automatically all the way up, all the way down. It's known as the Sabbath elevator. Why? Because those who are truly keeping the oral tradition of the law Pushing a button is work. You'd say pushing a button is not work. It is. When you push that button, it generates a tiny electrical spark, which is technically kindling a fire forbidden on the Sabbath. We may roll our eyes on this, but I don't want anyone to think for a second I'm making fun of this. I'm not disparaging. You know why? At least there's an attempt to honor the law of God. I give that great credit. So, so I know you, you're not used to hearing a word in defense of Phariseeism. <laughs> we'll get to that. But at least there's an attempt to honor God's law. So what's the problem? If I'm not making fun, and I'm saying this with the utmost respect, my issue then is with the pendulum. It seems like we've gone from lawlessness, and, and the Pharisees and those who built the oral tradition were trying to say, we don't want people messing up the Sabbath. We don't want people just blowing right through the Sabbath and treating it like any other work day. And because that's lawlessness, it's like they've come so far. My issue is we sure have made not working a ton of work. You see the irony? Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Like it was a gift from God. And we managed to make this, come on, of all commandments to break, we made it all this work to try to figure out, am I keeping the Sabbath? Am I not keeping the Sabbath? How am I going to work out the Sabbath the whole time? God's like, I, I literally gave you a stop work day. Come on. Yes, I know you don't want to be lawless, but don't take it to legalism. Come on, you, you, you can't tell me. That, here's what a stop work day is. One day in seven, I'm giving you a, 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 no work day. Ooh, here's one. I'm giving you a start your morning with worship day. 
Have you forgotten how good it is that one day in seven, we get to come together with brothers and sisters and we get to worship Almighty God together? Here, I'm gonna give you a free, it's a a worship day. And then after that, it's a Sunday school day. Oh, I realized for this service, it's a Sunday school day, then it's a worship day. But you get the point, right? You get to drink some coffee and gather around brothers and sisters, talk about the word of God. And then after that, are you kidding me? As if all that's not good enough, God gives you a, it's a worship day, it's a Sunday school day, and then it's a have some fried chicken day. It's a Guthrie sauce kind of day, right? And after that, it's a what, you are given a watch football day? Are you kidding me? And here, and you've been waiting for it, can I get an amen? It's a take a nap day. How did we mess this up, guys? How would we take this into legalism? What happened? It was given for human flourishing. And when you wake up from that nap, best of all, it's a start thinking about kindness and mercy. Who can I bake some brownies for? Who seems to be really down? Who do I need to do an act of kindness for? You know what? Let's bake some brownies for our neighbor and go run them over there. That's the kind of day it was given. And we made this a burden. Why was it specifically a burden in these verses? The Pharisees would have accused the disciples of breaking no fewer than four Sabbath laws. Do you know what they were? When they took the grain... They said, ah, that's reaping, illegal, according to our oral law. And then you know how you get the grain out? You got to do this. You know what they would say? Ah, that's technically threshing. And then when they did this, to blow the chaff away, that's technically winnowing. I know you're used to winnowing in a big open space, but that's a mini winnow. That's That's a minnow. And when you ate it, you would, now, you've technically done all that. You've prepared a meal, all of which is forbidden on the oral law. Why? To keep people from lawlessness. And Jesus is saying, <laughs> you may have overcorrected. Look at his response. How do we do this? Here's why this is so important. Listen, you've got to hear me. The solution is not lawlessness. Too many people leave legalism, and they overcorrect into lawlessness. And I'm trying to tell you, both are poison. Both are toxic. Both will enslave. How can we navigate, as 2023 Christians who have a little bit of legalists in all of us, how can we navigate not being legalistic but not being lawless? Jesus can show us the way. Look at Jesus' response. And I'll give you a few things to write down, and hopefully it'll be an application that'll help you in navigating not legalism, not lawless. Here's the first thing he does. He said to them, verse 3, have you not read what, don't you love it when Jesus says that? These are the experts in the Old Testament. And he said, have you not, y'all haven't read your own book. Jesus outthumps the Bible thumpers with their own Bible, doesn't he? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only the priests? Now, of course, they'd read that. They knew that. They had recently had their preacher take him 28 weeks through First and Second Samuel. <laughs> Bless their hearts. And so they knew this. They knew the story immediately. They knew we were talking about 1 Samuel 21 when David had been anointed as the true king but not yet enthroned. Anybody see any parallels? He'd been anointed as the true and coming king, but he'd not yet been enthroned. And there was an evil king that had lost his mind named Saul who was thinking he was at large and in charge of everything. And this new and anointed king was on the run from Saul. So David runs from Saul because Saul tried to take his life, and he ends up at a town called Nob. He gets to Nob, and there's a priest named Ahimelech. He says, what are you doing here? And David has to lie. He's like, uh, yeah, uh, 
we're on a super, super secret mission. So secret, nobody knows about it. You're like, oh, okay. Um, in fact, it was so secret, we weren't allowed to bring any food. Um, <laughs> uh, and so um, we're here, and we're famished to have anything to eat. Ahimelech looks around, and there's nothing to eat except for the bread of presence. What's that? The show bread. There was some symbolism here, but every Sabbath, the priest would break, bake 12 beautiful loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, to signify every Sabbath the sacrifice unto the Lord there at the tabernacle. It was obviously symbolic, ceremonial, very, very holy, and you wouldn't just throw that bread away after the Sabbath. The priest would eat it, and that's what's prescribed. That's how you're supposed to do it. And so David is like, we're starving, and Himelech's like, we got nothing, man. I'm so sorry. We, we, we don't have anything here. And you imagine them both looking at this holy showbread and Himalek's thinking I, I'm not um, I'm not sure that's kosher uh, to just give this out to you and your men but here's the thing you're the anointed king so like I guess it's cool if you're David I guess it's cool and so they pass it out to David I guess, I guess like I guess like our oral law crumbles if like the true king is in our presence the king's the ultimate lawgiver so I guess the king has a right yeah, I guess if you're David, sure. And it was cool. And you know what? It was cool. And the Bible doesn't condemn any of that. So Jesus is saying, see, if you've got somebody who is the true and anointed king, then all your oral law just has to yield. To which you imagine the Pharisees being like, the reason it was cool for David is because David is like, David, who are you? Look at verse 8. <laughs> Somebody here greater than David, son of man's Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of this whole system. Which you can imagine the Pharisees thinking, who do, you, who do you think you are? So the first step in avoiding legalism or lawlessness, if you want to get this right, you need to consider a few things. And the first is this, you need to consider Christ as king. He is the true and better David. Just like David was anointed and his whole journey through Samuel is about him being enthroned, so too the son of man Jesus. He was anointed when the spirit anointed him at his baptism and he would be enthroned on Calvary's cross and on Easter's empty tomb. He would be forever enthroned as king. He's on his way to king. And when the true king, that's how Matthew starts the gospel, the genealogy of Jesus, son of David. When David's true and better heir, Jesus Christ comes. When he's king, I'll be kept from legalism. I'll be kept from lawlessness. If I can keep in my head, Jesus is the Lord of my life. I've given everything to Jesus. Why will that keep me from legalism? You're not going to put any external law on me. You're not going to say to be saved, I need Jesus plus do those things you told me to do. No, no, no. I'm not going to come under the yoke of legalism, but I'm also not going to be lawless. Why? Because I'm under Christ's law and his law is that I bear one another's burdens. His is a law of love. It's going to keep me from both these errors. If I say, Jesus, you are Lord over everything I have. If he's the true king, that'll keep us on the right path. That's the first thing he says. So consider Christ as king. He goes on, he gives him a second one. Or, or, have you not read? He does it again. You guys have not read your Bibles. He's saying to the Pharisees, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Hmm? I guess Pharisees are like, well, I never really thought about that. If you think about it, the Sabbath is a day of rest for God's people, and they bring double offerings on that Sabbath morning. They bring the double offerings, and the priests, think about it, they have to do double work to get all those animals on the altar and to get them slaughtered properly and to do all that. 
the people can enjoy rest because the priests actually, he goes, if you think about it, the priests are not just working on the Sabbath. According to your oral tradition, they're like double working. They're full on profaning the Sabbath with that amount of work. Why are they guiltless? <sighs> to which Pharisees are like, well, that's, that's a good point. Uh, I guess it, it like doesn't count if you're like part of the temple system. I mean, I see what you're saying. Yes, the priests technically are working, but it doesn't count as work for them because they're like part of the temple system. So I guess the rule of thumb is if you're part of the temple system, it kind of like supersedes our oral traditions about the Sabbath. As Jesus says, verse six, yeah, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Whoo. Now you can imagine that would be shocking for them to hear it then. It's still shocking in some ways today. So the first thing I ask you to consider in terms of application, if you want to be kept from legalism and lawlessness, is first is consider Christ as king. The second is consider the temple system fulfilled. Consider the temple system fulfilled. Hey, th- th- this may help you. Some people wonder, like, you-, you may have wondered this, how come New Testament Christians don't, like, how come we don't eat kosher foods? Or how come we don't feel a law necessary to make us eat kosher foods? You ever wonder about that? Like, why don't we, oh, here's one, why don't we have sacrifices at a temple? I mean, it's in the Bible, all that stuff. Or wh- what about this one? How come we worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning instead of Sabbath was Saturday for all those years? You ever wonder, like, why New Testament Christians like, don't, don't do that. Why can we have bacon, <laughs> you know, and barbecue, right? Uh, why is that? Why are New Testament Christians not offering sacrifices, and why don't we have a, a, a Sabbath on Saturday? We, we, we take a day of rest, many people, on, on, uh, on the Lord's Day. Is it because Jesus abolished all those laws? No. Do not think for one second he came to abolish it. He didn't abolish that law. He fulfilled it. Stay with me. The whole sacrificial system, the whole kosher diet, the whole ceremonial law, it was a pointer to point us to Jesus Christ. It was, if you will, a shadow of the one who was to come, Jesus. The law was fulfilled in Jesus. That's still difficult for people to get their heads around. That's why the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, there's a whole book kind of devoted to that. But you'll still even hear people today. They say, oh, you know, why do those Christians, they celebrate Sabbath, they, they, they celebrate their Saturday, on, not on Saturday, on the Sunday. So, so because there's so much confusion, there's always been confusion. Paul had to set a group of early Christians straight, the apostle Paul, because they were um, getting on to each other saying, well, you should still keep kosher. You should still be eating kosher food. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So in Colossians 2, 216, he actually has to write them this letter, and here's what he said. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon. You know, you're not keeping this religious festival. You're not keeping, or a Sabbath, and here's why. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. You abide in Christ. He's fulfilled the law. You are not now under a legal obligation for all these Old Testament commands. So so think of it this way. We do not offer sacrifices as New Testament Christians because it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus is our once for all sacrifice. Does that make sense? We do not go and visit the temple on a pilgrimage because Jesus is our true and better temple. We do not pray our prayers to God through a great high priest because Jesus is our forever high priest. And we do not 
get legalistic about the Sabbath because Jesus is our true and forever Sabbath rest. He fulfilled the law. So let's review. Consider Christ as king. Consider the temple system fulfilled. And finally, and I'll I'll leave this one for you to figure out. Consider the motive blank. I, I realize if I say finally and give you the third point, the temptation is just to kind of shut the book and be done. So let's do this. Consider Christ is king. Consider the temple system fulfilled. And then you tell me, consider the motive. There's a motive here, and you fill this in. You fill in the blank. You see if you can guess what this is. And if, you, and if we get done with the sermon and you feel like, and I tell you what I think the blank is, and if you feel like your answer is better than mine, see me afterward, and I can always change it. I can go back and correct. <laughs> Everybody got it? Consider the motive. It's a heart issue. Look at verse 7. If you had known what this means... If you had known what this means, and he repeats something he said a few chapters ago, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Now, what's he talking about here? He's saying, you didn't do your homework, did you? I assigned y'all homework, you didn't do it. That's why he didn't say, remember the other two times he said, have you not read? Have you not read? This time, and if you had known, why? Because I assigned this as homework. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Several chapters ago, it was Matthew 9. Do you remember this sermon? It was when Jesus was at the house of Matthew the tax collector and all the sinners. Anybody remember this? He's eating with all the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees, whoo, they are mad. And they won't go in because they don't want to get, you know, contaminated, I guess, with all their legalism. So they stand at the fence and they say, Peter, Andrew, come here. And they ask him, why does your teacher eat with these undesirables, right? These sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus overhears it and he comes over himself and he says, Go and learn what this means. He assigns them some homework. And the homework he assigns them is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, you need to go home and do a Bible study, do a Torah study on Hosea 6, 6, which, by the way, if you're keeping score, he's the true and better David, means Christ is king. He's greater than the temple system, which means Christ is priest. And here, by quoting Hosea, Christ is prophet. He's prophet, priest, and king right here in this short text. So he's saying, I told you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And clearly you didn't. Clearly didn't. And so in doing so, you condemned the guiltless. You, you are busting my disciples' chops because they were eating this food and they're guilt. They haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what, you know what got you in trouble? You still don't get it. It's about mercy and not sacrifice. And here's what he's... With all the love in his heart, it's as if Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. You really don't get it, do you? You still think that, that getting to God is a bunch of rule following. And if you can check all the right boxes, and if you can be a good little boy or a good little girl who does all the right things, then you can get into heaven. And if you can sacrifice enough of your life, then you can get into glory and you can get into heaven. You honestly think that, and you have forgotten. It's all about God's mercy. It's about his mercy. And if you had known that, if you could have figured out Hosea 6.6, 6, and there's still people today that that's their understanding. If I do all the right things and check all the right boxes and follow all the rules, some of which I made up, then I can be good with God. He said, it's about mercy. And if you had known that, then when you looked in at Matthew's house and you saw a bunch of sinners, you wouldn't have thought, how dare he eat with sinners? Your first thought would have been, we're all sinners. I can't believe Jesus would eat with any of us. Isn't Jesus awesome? Isn't Jesus the best? 
Praise Jesus. He loves all of us. And your first thought would have gone to mercy. And then when you see the Pharisees on the Sabbath eating some grain, instead of thinking, how dare they do that on the Sabbath, your first thought would have been, isn't the mercy of God good? Look, look, they, they didn't work for that food. They didn't plant it. They didn't weed it or anything. They just get to eat all because of God's mercy. Isn't God good? He just lets disciples eat food they didn't even plant. He's just so good and merciful. When people are not legalistic, their minds immediately go to mercy. And that's their motivation. As if to illustrate all this, in verse 9, it says he went on from there. I don't think it happened on the same day, but he went on from there, entered their synagogue. And here, I think the Pharisees planted this man. Look at verse 10. There's a man there with a withered hand, it says. So we don't know, some sort of deformity or atrophy. Here's why I think he planted it. They asked him, they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. I think the whole thing's a trap. I don't think the man with the withered hand wanted to be a pawn in their cruel game. I think he probably hid his hand in his sleeve. I imagine it was a source of great shame. I imagine he didn't want it brought up in front of everybody. He's the guy who slips into the back of church. He longs to be with God, but for whatever reason, often for issues of shame, he doesn't want really a whole lot of attention, but he longs for God, but he's got this source of shame. And and the Pharisees don't say, heal the guy with the withered hand. They merely ask this question, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Here's why the whole thing's a trap. What's the oral law about Sabbath on healing? Do you know it? Answer, you are only allowed to heal if it's a situation of life and death. So if it's life or death, you can heal on the Sabbath. Other than that, no. So this guy with the withered hand presumably has that issue for many, many years. He's going to have it tomorrow. The Pharisees know all that, but they also know Jesus. They've been watching Jesus for a while, and they know when Jesus gets around anybody that has an illness or, or they're hurting or they're ashamed or they're in pain, Jesus, he can't help himself, can he? Jesus can't stand it when people are suffering around him, can he? Because his main mission is to preach the gospel, but he's always healing people like, here, I'm going to heal you. Don't tell anybody. i got to stay focused, but I can't help it, isn't it? He's got this huge heart of love. And the Pharisees know. The Pharisees know it's a trap. They know he can see the man with the withered hand. And you almost imagine him. He sees him. And as soon as the Pharisees see Jesus, see the guy with the withered hand, they're like, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? We're not telling you to heal because you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath unless it's life or death. We're just throwing it out there. Do it, Jesus. Do it. They know he's going to do it. You can imagine every, all, every Pharisee, they got their phones right there recording. And they don't have phones. They had tablets. And they're, they know, they 100% know what he's going to do. He's going to right there in front of everybody break the oral traditions of the law, which they held so sacred. He's going to blow up their legalism. They know he is. But Jesus, ever the master teacher, Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. He sees the guy. He knows he's in pain. He looks back at the Pharisees and he asks them this question. Which of you? Which of you who has a sheep? Not a hundred sheep. That's another story for another day. A sheep. One sheep. Your entire flock consists of one sheep. And that one sheep falls into a pit. Oh, but it's the Sabbath. Do you realize to reach down and to lift a heavy sheep out of a pit who's in trouble, who's hurt, to lift him, that would cause great work. The sheep's not going to die, so it's not life or death. It's just stuck in a pit. Which of you would not see that sheep in a pit on a Sabbath? Would you not take hold of it and lift it out? He looks around. You're telling me your whole flock consists of one fluffy little lamb 
And you're telling me, just because it happens to be a Sabbath, that lamb is in pain, and you can hear it whimpering. Meh, meh. This guy's little lamb. It's pit, pit, pitiful. <laughs> Bless his little heart. You got a brand new puppy, and it's Paul stuck in a fence, and that thing's crying out for help. He's saying, which of you? And you can take a nap through that? So you can just go, you can take your, your Sabbath afternoon nap hearing your precious little lamb crying out for help. You must have a heart of stone if you can sleep through that. Anybody? Of course, Pharisees are all like, because even the Pharisees thinking about little fluffy, little Sir Flufflesworth, you know, they all got their pet lambs. They understand. Even in Pharisees, heart loves a little lamb. Jesus says, that's exactly right. Not a single one of you would do that. Why? Compassion. And what's he saying in the next verse? Well, People worth more than sheep, aren't they? Aren't they? Every Pharisee had to agree, yeah, yeah. How much more value is a man than a sheep? So yeah, to answer your question, you asked, is it lawful to heal? Let me reframe it. It's lawful to do good. Calls the man with the withered hand. Next verse. Jesus says in verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. It's not breaking the Sabbath law to say stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. <laughs> Jesus just out-sabbathed the Pharisees, and he embarrassed those Pharisees. He, I mean, he didn't, he didn't start it. It's not his fault. Those Pharisees were humiliated. You know what humiliated people do? Humiliated people are the most dangerous people. They plot his murder in the next verse. Verse 14 ends our text here. We'll stop here. Look at verse 14 but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Another translation says they went out and plotted murder against him. Does everyone see the tragic irony? They thought it was wrong to heal a man on the Sabbath, but it's okay to commit, conspire to commit murder. Like planning murder's cool on the Sabbath, but no, that withered hand thing, that was a no-no. Come on. That's where legalism will get you. Legalism will bring you finally to a point where you honestly think you're so twisted that you think devotion to God is more important than sympathy to a human being. That's the poison of a legalistic heart. I'm telling you, the solution is not lawlessness. It's something else. It's the motive of. Brandon's gonna come and lead us. I hadn't forgotten about that blank. Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. <clears throat> and you, I fill in the blank like this. The thing to keep us from the legalism, the thing that can keep us from the lawlessness you stay yoked to Jesus, and it's a motive of love. Love. That's how I would fill in the blank. Is that how you filled in the blank? If you put compassion or mercy, you got it right. I'm not legalistic. If you put something that said, but a heartbeat of compassion will keep me from lawlessness, and a heartbeat of compassion will keep me from legalism. In fact, if you'd say the whole law can be summed up in loving God and loving other people, now you've got it. That's, in fact, what Jesus said. He told the Pharisees, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. On these, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. You've managed to miss the forest for the trees. Just love. Love. Let me ask you this question as directly as I know how. Some of you are walking under a burden. If you and I were alone and we were, we were across the table and we were having a cup of coffee, this is what I would want to ask you. And this is what I want, would want you to ask me. Your Christianity, this whole faith thing, is it a burden? Or is it a joy? That is a piercingly diagnostic question for you this morning. 
This whole Jesus thing, is he a burden or is he rest? Coming to church on a Sunday morning, can I, can I put too fine a point on it? Coming to church on a Sunday morning, is it something you grind out week after week? Or is it love? What drew you here this morning? When it comes to Jesus, is he a burden? Or do you love him? That's what keeps your heart from legalism. It's love. Do you love him? Are you grinding out the commands of God as if you're under some heavy yoke? Or is the gospel still good news that the king of glory wants a relationship with you, a friendship with you? And burdens, he'll carry them. Troubles, he'll take them. Temptations, he'll walk you through. Death, he's got you covered there too. Is it still a joy? Do you need to go back to where it all started? Do you need to go back to him? See, be like that man with the withered hand. Whoo! We never hear from him again. But you tell me, I bet he didn't miss a synagogue. I bet he did not miss a Sabbath. And every time they'd do testimony time at the synagogue, he'd be like, I got one. All right, I think we all know. I want to tell it again. I want to give more praise to God. And I want everybody to look right here. <laughs> he did that. What would it be like for that dude to meet, uh, meet risen Lord Jesus after the resurrection? Huh? What would that be like? Can you imagine? He sees Jesus. He's got two perfectly good hands. He comes up to Jesus, gives a hug, and he can't help but notice Jesus' hands look different. His, which were perfectly good and healthy, are still marred by a terrible scar where they drove nails into his hands. Can you imagine what that would have been like for that man with the withered hand when he put it all together that for my hand to be healed, his had to be ripped open? And he did that for me and my salvation? Oh, don't let it become legalism. Don't let it become lawlessness, but don't let it become legalism. Sabbath and all the rest of it. Let it center around a love relationship with your Lord Jesus. Come back to that this morning. Let's pray. God, grant to us that we would not fall into the toxic poison of legalism on one side. Grant that we would not fall into the toxic poison of a lawless life that has no concern for the things of God on the other. Grant instead that we might have a motive that considers you as Lord and considers how you fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. And God, grant to us your gospel good news runs so deep that we would overflow unto others from a motive of love. That we might say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. How I meditate on it day and night. Get us to a place where we have the good sense to realize your blessings are your commands and your commands are a blessing. Bring us to that place. And thank you, Lord, that to know you is to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?